This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. Today's interview is with Gerbeer Graywell, who has to be one of the most interesting people in government. It's hard to imagine someone more down to earth and relatable in the offices that he's held. As a fellow New Jersey Punjabi, I've been thrilled to see his ascent, including his groundbreaking tenure at the New Jersey Attorney General's office and New Highs as director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement. In our interview, we took some time to explore the principles and experiences that shaped his path. Here's Gerbeer. Last we discussed, I, I heard an interesting part of your story where uh, I didn't realize you had this this liberal arts college uh, dream once upon a time. And so, uh, you know, you spent, I think it was a year at Bates, which is, you know, a really beautiful, small school, private school in, in Maine. Uh, and so my understanding is you went there because you wanted to study poetry. Uh, tell me about, is that right? Poetry? Not poetry. I, I, I wanted to be a writer. Writer. So I, I wanted to write fiction. Uh, I, I I just thought I it would be great to go to like this small liberal arts college in the woods in New England somewhere, and just just find myself and 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 you know, express myself and, and do something super creative. Uh, and so I chose Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. But that's not super common among our crowd, right? I mean, that's not like a that's not like a famous path that people are setting out to do. Uh, not not that I know. Of. I, I yeah. think if there's a surefire way to disappoint your parents as a South Asian kid, it's to say, "Listen, you know that doctor thing. I'm not going to pursue a degree in medicine. I'm not going to pursue an undergraduate degree in science. I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm not going to even be a lawyer or computer programmer. I'm going to, you know." go to a small liberal arts college in Maine, which is going to cost an arm and a leg. And I'm going to you know, pursue a creative writing path and, and, and try to write a novel or do something creative, which which was not well received. I don't know what, what your upbringing has been like or what, what the preferred career choices were in your household. I'm an only child also. So all the eggs were literally in one basket. And that's what I wanted to do. And I think part of it was a function of my folks not knowing the system and me just saying, yeah, no, this is a great college. Just, you know, I need this check to to put the application in. Yeah, I got in. It's a top liberal arts college and, and sort of keeping them on the dark on certain things. <laughs> right. Because we didn't have like our parents, at least I didn't, helping edit college essays or helping me prepare for SATs or, or drilling me on SAT words. It was, and I was alone and it was just all me. Um, I don't think I had the same sort of support that my kids now have. They've got counselors who are super uh, into their development. It just was different then. And so, yeah, I did that. I went up to Maine. Uh, it was great. They They obviously wanted to address diversity issues. So they brought me up for this like, accepted students of color weekend. It was in the spring. I got on a bus from Port Authority and I got on the bus and it was just like a bus full of like, you know, minority kids from New York City area going up to Bates to visit. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. It's like, seems like a, a pretty diverse crowd. Like it's got to be great when we get up there and it's not a very diverse place, right? <laughs> You're in the middle of like rural Maine. Uh, the college is the only thing in this old mill town. Uh, and it's tough, but it was a really accepting student body. I, I, I will say that. And I spent the first um, semester there taking English classes, taking classes in rhetoric. They had a major, you can major in mm -hmm. rhetoric. Uh, 
they had a great debate team. I joined that, the Quimby Debate Council. And, you know, I took a class in, in foreign policy. And I remember the professor's name, Jim Richter. I love that. Like, I had never even thought about international relations. And that prompted me to look at the course catalog at, at Bates. And it's a small catalog. And it became apparent to me that if I tried to pursue something different, I'd run out of classes in a matter of a year or two, right? And so I had a roommate uh, who was looking to apply to different schools to transfer. He wasn't happy at Bates. And, and I was becoming increasingly unhappy as the winter came around. Uh, the main winters are tough. And so I started looking at, at transfer opportunities and I took one of his uh, transfer uh, catalogs and I, I looked at the Georgetown application, uh, which was for their foreign service foreign service school. Uh, and I thought it'd be a great opportunity to like go try to be a diplomat and, and represent the country, you know, represent the United States in far flung places. And uh, so that's what I did. So, you know, uh, so to answer your question, yes, I had a very stereotypical South Asian background where, yes, I, I was expected to go to med school, blah, blah, blah. I studied biology in college, went to a good technical college. And uh, then I kind of figured, okay, that's that's not what I want to do. And so then I, I, I kind of had a circuitous path uh, that eventually led me to law school. But so that training that I had, the science training propped up in different ways throughout my career. Uh, you know, I, I ended up doing patent litigation, which heavily leaned on that science background. Um, but then just, I think in general, like my inclination, which is very heavily influenced by the set of ideas that I acquired there, just a set of principles, methodologies you learn when you study the sciences, I think has affected my decision-making since then. So in what ways do you think, I mean, I know it's not so rare for a lawyer to have, you know, the kind of humanities background that you've had, but what are some of the ways you think some of that early training has, has echoed throughout your career? What, what are some of the ideas you, you mentioned this one professor and his influence, like, are, are there ideas that you can trace to those formative years that have just kind of uh, made a presence in your career? Sure. I, I think at Bates, I really took it seriously about learning to be a good writer. And they had a, a writer's workshop and they had a place, I forgot what it was actually called, where you can go if you're working on papers, you can sit down with uh, professors who are there to help you edit your, your essays and, and help you think about you know, making your writing more clear, whether it's creative writing, whether it's, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, something more, you know, for for a, a history class or, or what have you. And I think that was the first time where I really appreciated the whole editing process about just sort of continuing to refine uh, your, your written work product to just make it better and make it uh, crisper and to make it um, more economical, really, just to be more economical with your words. That that was a takeaway from my experience at Bates. And I think everywhere along the way, I've sort of built on that. Uh, I've been known to be a heavy editor, uh, that that if I do get into a document or into you know a speech or, or, or something that I'm working on, I, I'll really spend time with it. And I'll really sort of, you know, edit things. Uh, and, and then I'll sit down with folks to explain to them why I made certain changes, why I moved things around, because it's it's hard having been an associate at a law firm just to get uh, a document back where it seems like somebody just opened up a red pen and just you know bled on the page uh, and not give you an explanation uh, to, to take that sort of uh, feedback. And so I think that's one thing, the, uh, the writing process I picked up early on. Uh, I think, interestingly enough, at, at Georgetown, uh, where, where my major within the Foreign Service uh, School touched on diplomacy, 
that's a skill you employ in all aspects of life. You're, you're studying world conflicts and you're studying you know, resolution and to conflicts and how things resolved in certain parts of the world and how they didn't and uh, the value of, of diplomacy. And I think in many ways, uh, a lot of what we do as lawyers in litigation is diplomacy. We're trying to find a middle ground where we're addressing our clients' needs, or in my case, you know, meet the, the you know, acquit the uh, sort of the, um, you know, what we're trying to do uh, as a regulator to our responsibilities and understanding that, you know, there are always two sides to a story. There are mitigating factors on the other side and to try to find a middle ground. I think that's a through line uh, in all litigation uh, because not everything ends up going to court and not uh, everything in court goes to trial. I mean, you have judges pushing uh, arbitrations and mediations and ways to find uh, resolution short of trial. So I think that's something else you know, as I think about it, probably is something uh, that I've kept with me from from the training at, at the Foreign Service uh, School. So those are two things that I could think of. Yeah, I like that. Is there, uh, um, is there a decision that you've made you think is traceable to some, that you turned some model of some specific conflict and said, okay, in this specific conflict, this is this was the issue, this was the resolution, or this was the thing that wasn't resolved? Was there something that tangible for you that you know you can you can trace or I don't I, you know like some sort of game theory where I'm, I'm sort of mapping things out and and figuring out if they if this happens and this happens and no something, I, something more anecdotal something more practical I would say like not not this abstract thing but like oh well, if this is just like you know how the British dealt with this thing and blah 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 oh no I mean I I I don't not consciously maybe maybe yeah. you know unconsciously but. I, I think when when you look at conflict and and that's I, that's what I studied. I took a, a class called Map of the Modern World, where where your entire uh, class revolved around like looking at why borders formed in a particular place and the, and the conflicts and the divisions that fell along those borders, and, and understanding you know sort of the 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 religious fault lines, understanding cultural fault lines, understanding political fault lines and how they've resulted in the map of the modern world that we have today. And, and so I think that was, you know, something that, that I took with me to, to really sort of understand, you know, why does this happen? Like to, to try to make sense of what's happened in the Indian subcontinent, right? What's yeah. happened in all parts of the world. We took a, I had a professor, John Esposito, this was in uh, night, like the, the early nineties, right. Who, who taught Islam and politics. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this, who taught, who talked about um, you know the issues that we're dealing with today, like but talking about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in, in Egypt at the time, and 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 you know you see the through lines uh, in, in all the the issues that we've seen play out over the last uh, twenty plus years. So it, it was a a great education in that regard as well, understanding everything that was happening in the world and understanding where those fault lines were and what the basis for those fault lines uh, or what caused those fault lines, in other words. Uh, and so I think. No, I can't point to anything that I've studied where I said, oh, you know, like I, I remember looking at this conflict. So this is sort of, there's some parallels here in, you know, trying to navigate a path forward with, with law enforcement in New Jersey as we're trying to negotiate a policy, but, but, but the core principle, right. To understand why people get so dug in to certain positions and, and understanding that you need to, you know, show a degree of respect because while you might not agree with where they're coming from they they are adamant right they are adamant and they they are you know dug into that position and, and you're not going to convince them 
uh, otherwise. But but there's an opportunity through conversation to find a middle ground. And I think oftentimes we overcomplicate policymaking. We complicate, um, you know, litigation. I mean, we comp- overcomplicate these things because at the end of the day, it's just about sitting down, being transparent, being, you know, being open as I was as AG when we're dealing with difficult issues. This is why I'm doing this, right? This being clear uh, and explaining w- what you're doing, why you're doing it, being willing to be willing to hear from other people and then not be afraid to to move on your policy and say, you know what, that that's a good point. That open conversation, uh, I think, is is the path forward on so many of these issues. And we tend to, you know, sort of overcomplicate things. Who do you think really models that well? Well, I mean, in my own experience, um, I can't think... I'm sure if I, I thought long and hard about it, there's somebody out there, you know, who I, I see, you know, is able to go into a room, uh, listen to different sides uh, and, and find a middle ground. Um, I mean, I I think Obama was somebody who, who had that ability, I guess, to, to really hear people and see them where they were and, um, you know, sort of exude compassion and understanding of, of people's perspectives. And, you know, explain his policies in a clear uh, manner. He, he couldn't win everybody over, but he he was a great communicator in that way, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, we've already kind of, discor- we've already talked about some things in your career and, and some straight lines, you know, through the different experiences you've had, AG, you know, in your current role as well. Uh, but I, I kind of want to start earlier and just go, kind of go through chronologically because I think some of the, that we've talked before that'd be interesting sport in your career are the ways in which your path is not linear. I think it'd be very easy to conclude, uh, you know, looking at the trajectory of, of, of your career, that it's been this, you know, one step leads to the next and it's a logical next step. And, you know, I, I think you have a difference of opinion on that. So I, 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 I want to explore that. So what do you think would be the best jumping off for that? Do you think they'll be starting, you know, when you're county prosecutor? Like, what, what do you think is the first non-linearity you think you experience, let's say in your legal career? So I, I I'd start I'd go back to you know the, the the decision on what to study and where to go to college, right? And that's what I mean by nonlinear. And I talk about this uh, quite a bit when I have the opportunity to talk to to younger law students or to people who are looking for career advice. And the message that I I try to share with them is that you need to be resilient because you may think that you you know that this is the path for you. But there might be something that that gets in the way, and and you may have to shift course. And that's what I mean by nonlinear. Uh, for example, like we talked about, when I graduated uh, high school, I wanted to be an English major. I wanted to write uh, the next great American novel, as I as as we were talking about just a moment ago. I went to to Bates, a small liberal arts college. I got there. I realized very quickly that I wasn't that great at creative writing. I realized very quickly that I didn't want to be in Maine. I realized very quickly that I that a small liberal arts college wasn't for me. And I got exposed to something else. I got exposed and I got a taste of an international relations course, which pushed me in a different direction. And that direction was to, to consider going to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service to pursue a degree and get into the, the foreign service, to, to take the foreign service exam and, and be part of the diplomatic corps and 
go travel the world and, and, and represent the country. And so, you know, I went to Georgetown. I was lucky enough to get in. When I was about to graduate, there was a hiring freeze at the State Department. President Clinton said, we're not, you know, increasing the size of the federal government at this time. Uh, we're not going to offer the, the Foreign Service exam at this point. Uh, and so I didn't have uh, a plan B at that at that time. I, I had all my eggs in that basket that I wanted to stay in D.C., study for this uh, exam and, and go down this career path. But that door closed as well. And, and I came back to New Jersey and did not have a job uh, and, and just really uh, didn't do much, uh, frankly. I had the luxury to not do much at that time. A lot of folks don't have that luxury. And in that you know, in those months, um, and I joke about it quite often, uh, I was watching television and I was watching Law and Order and, and I saw Jack McCoy and I said, oh, this is pretty good. You know, I think I could do that. I've been uh, good at talking uh, on my feet. I've done debate. Uh, and so why not consider law school? And so when, when that foreign uh, service career wasn't available, I, I pivoted to go to law school on a whim, really. On a whim, I, I go to to William and Mary because I wanted to be back in the D.C. area, and you know I graduate from William and Mary and I get a job at one of the biggest law firms in Washington D.C., a litigation shop, and I would have stayed there. I would have been a litigator. I had no desire uh, for public service or to 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 enter public service. Um, I enjoyed being at a big law firm. I enjoyed all the trappings that come with it. Uh, I had my own challenges at big law. Uh, which I'm happy to talk about uh, as well. But again, another event happens, and that was September 11th. And that was a turning point for many of us because it, it, you really sort of think about what you're doing then uh, and there, and, and you think about all you're dealing with. I mean, we're dealing with an incredible tragedy as a country, but then we're also dealing with another tragedy that hit a lot of us and, and hit differently for us. We were othered then. We were made to feel as if we weren't American because of what we look like, the color of our skin, our names. Uh, and I recall leaving uh, the office after uh, after watching uh, the towers fall with my my colleagues, uh, feeling that we were all coming together, walking onto the street and seeing people look at me and say things to me. And it already started that first night. And I remember my mother called me and said, hey, you know what? Be a little careful today because people who six who are in the city you know, working uh, in New York City, had a tough time leaving and they were being targeted and harassed because of what happened. I said, what are you talking about? Like, why would anybody do that to me? You know, like I was born here, like I'm an American. Uh, and it was within a matter of days where that that notion just was completely, you know, I, I, it was wiped away. I, I was not American to many people. And, and so that set me off to think, you know, why is that the case? What can I do about it? And and the more I thought about it, what I could do about it is go out there and, and, and tell people who I was and, and to tell them why you don't have to look a certain way or believe a certain way to be American. And the way I could do that, in my mind, because I was a litigator, was getting into public service. And so that, that tragedy and, and that patriotism that I felt as well pushed me uh, to enter public service, to become a federal prosecutor. And, and, you know, I don't want to keep going on and on, but like it's it's just one thing after the next in, in, in that same sort of vein that's happened to me in my career. I, I was so happy being a federal prosecutor. I, it was so rewarding. I, I was promoting understanding through my work. 
I was getting up in court each and every day. And I can't tell you, unless you've done it, to get up in front of a lectern and say your name and say you represent the United States. There, The first time you do that, the second time you do that, every time you do that is such an incredible privilege. Uh, and, and it's really just, at least to me, it was. like it, it never became old. It was always exciting. Like I always felt nervous when I was saying it. Uh, and, but I knew like looking in that courtroom, like there are agents waiting for their next case. There's members of the public there. There's a judge, there's a jury. You could be trying a case. You could be in front of a grand jury. They're all looking at you and seeing the United States. And, and so that's why I did that. And I would continue to have done that, but for a call I got from, from Governor Christie. I ended up initially at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. I moved on to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Jersey. Uh, Governor Christie, um, you know, his office called me uh, and asked me if I had any interest in in being the Bergen County prosecutor. That's the county in which I live. I had no idea what the Bergen County prosecutor does. None. Because my experience was in the federal system. So the person's on the line with me. I go online as he's talking to me and I'm looking up the Bergen County prosecutor's office, chief law enforcement officer of Bergen County, New Jersey, county of at that time, like 900,000. Uh, you know, 70 police, uh, 70 municipalities, 72 police station, uh, police agencies. Uh, that's a uniquely Jersey thing that there were more police agencies in the county than there were municipalities. And there were two municipalities that didn't even have police departments. So like it's, you know, a lot of law enforcement, uh, 4,000 law enforcement officers, you're the chief law enforcement officer. I'm like, wow, this would be great because it allows me to continue in public service, continue to give back, continue to promote understanding, continue to do all of that right where I live. And at that time I had uh, three young girls and I said, this would be great. Like I, I, how great would this be for that next generation that I could go to their schools, that I could, you know, be around them and, and people will see, you know, in that space that, that again, that same thing, that this is part of America, that we are part of America because these are those frontline jobs that are so uniquely associated with what it is to be American. That you, that's, there's no, you know, it wasn't by happenstance that like all these new immigrant generations gravitated to to policing and, and gravitated to, you know, firefighting in, in New York City and other parts of the country, you know, whether it's, you know, the Irish, whether it's the Italians, like it was, it was intentional, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, you know, interviewed with Governor Christie. Uh, I remember, I remember walking in the door to his office and and almost like sort of confessing as I walked in that I'm a Democrat. And 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 he looked at me, he goes, Kabir, don't worry about it. Uh, I don't care, you know, about your party. I just want you to go uh, do this job, uh, you know, at, at, given, you know, who you are, your reputation, just call balls and strikes. And, and that's all I want. And if anyone gives you crap and use a different word, no one's going to run up to Bergen County and defend you, uh, you know, more quickly than I do. Because at that point, in uh, the context for that is he had appointed Sahel Muhammad uh, as a superior court judge, the first Muslim American uh, superior court judge in New Jersey. And I think he must have been campaigning or was somewhere out on the trail. And a woman criticized him for for appointing Sahel Muhammad, saying that he would impose Sharia law in Passaic County. And he told her that she was, you know, bat blank crazy uh, and defended him like passionately. And based on that, he said to me, if anybody ever gave you crap and used more colorful language, uh, I'll be there right by your side. And that meant a lot to me. And so, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go to Bergen County to be the county prosecutor. It was incredible. You know, I'm in the community. 
Uh, I'm in, you know, schools, I'm in church basements. I am there working on issues that I think are important, like building police community relations. This is well before all the events, uh, recent events that, that we, we experienced over the last several years. But even then, this, this was an important, uh, important theme for me, uh, given other, you know, sort of incidents that happened that, that really raised tensions between law enforcement and, and some of the communities that we served in that county. And importantly, I got to go into schools, as I said, and that the reason that was important for me, and I shared this when I spoke at the event that we were both at, is I know how hard it is uh, to be, and again, I don't know your experience, but I, I know my experience. I know how hard it is to be uh, someone who looks different and who wears a turban or wears a butka or, or wears their hair uh, or grows their hair as a young sick boy. I remember being tormented. I remember being bullied. I remember being ashamed of what I looked like, trying to like sort of hide into the back of rooms or, or disappear. Uh, and, and I wanted to go out there because maybe there was a kid who was going through something like that, but wasn't tough enough to get through it. Or maybe, you know, it affected them in a certain way. I wanted to be there. So they saw somebody who looked like me in, in those classrooms. And so I went, uh, we did classroom visits every Friday to talk about the opioid epidemic. I went nearly every Friday to as many as I could, not because I was an expert on the subject, but because I wanted to be there for that kid or any other kid who felt bullied or othered or felt, you know, targeted because of uh, they may worship differently or look different uh, than their their classmates. Uh, and, and you know, th that experience, because after one of those uh, one of those uh, presentations, I did have a mother reach out to me uh, at, at the Gurdwara, you know, where we worship here in, in Glenrock saying, hey, you visited my kid's class. Um, he, you don't know how much that meant to him. He was on the cusp of wanting to to cut his hair and lose his identity. But, you know, you being there just sort of steeled him up a little bit and, and gave him a little bit of confidence. Again, I don't know what happened to that kid. I don't know if, if he's still maintaining his articles of faith, but I know at least for the time being, I made it a little bit easier for him. And so, so you know, I continued to do that. Um, and it's the greatest job, I, you know, one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. Um, but then, you know, I got recognized uh, for the work I was doing there, and I got called uh, by Governor Murphy. Uh, and and that set me on the path to be the Attorney General, which I did for three and a half years. And I was doing that work, and and I got a call from from the SEC saying, hey, you know, you're you're doing terrific work in, in these spaces. Uh, we have an opening for our enforcement director. Would you consider coming and talking to us? And, and so... That's what I mean in a long-winded way about things not being linear. Like I, I went from one career choice force into another one, pursued a career in law, an external event, a massive, incredible tragedy forced me to think about public service and think about what it means to be a uh, sick in America at the time, and 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 you know what it means really to to try to do what I can to promote understanding and to make it better for others, because there are so many people who can't articulate who they are and, and are targeted because they're new immigrants or they are targeted because they don't have that same uh, ability to explain who they are. Um, and, and they may feel like they need to hide in the shadows. And so you know, that's what set me on that path. And then doing that work, it got recognized along the way, which prompted uh, other opportunities. And so maybe that's that's not the right, nonlinear is maybe not the right word, but that's how I describe it.
I, I think maybe another lens on, I, I think your point is this is hardly some foreseeable process. And if that's the point, then I think we, there's more we can dive into these decisions to make them, uh, to, to really understand, you know, what were the jumping out points you would consider? Like what was the relevant opportunity cost? What were the trade-offs? Let's go back to when your U.S. attorney got this call from, from Chris Christie saying, hey, uh, you know, you can be Bergen County prosecutor. What were the trade-offs you had in that mind? Because the trade-offs from going to big law into public service was pretty obvious, uh, right. you know, comp and, and that sort of prestige, whatever. And clearly it's driven by this value that you had of, hey, you know, it's really important as a sec to be an advocate for myself and others. Um, but so what what were the trade-offs that you had to consider and 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 confront? And what was the most challenging part of that decision? Well, the, the trade-offs, I mean... Uh, they're obvious. I think at every point, um, as I'm getting older <laughs> in every job, you know, now I have children uh, and, and I'm at the U.S. Attorney's Office. In my mind, had I not gotten that call, in my mind, my career path is, hey, you're you're the chief of the economic crimes unit here at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, you're overseeing the cyber unit. You're overseeing uh, the prosecution of every major white collar crime in the District of New Jersey. You know that the people who've held this job before you end up going to uh, lead a practice group at a big law firm and and end up making uh, a great career out of it. End up making, you know, a good salary and, and and just a terrific opportunity. And you know you could do that, right? Because you've prosecuted these cases, you investigated these cases, you know uh, what it takes to put them together, and you know like how effective defense attorneys can can take them apart as well. And, and so, um, so I think very much in my mind at that point was like, okay, let's do this for a couple more years. The kids are young. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, you know, we've done our public service. We've that motivation that, that brought us here to, to promote, you know, understanding to, to really uh, go out there and make a difference. I think, okay, you've made that difference, right? Like you see more and more people now following your career path. And then when you get that call, you reset all of that and you start to think about it through a different lens. And, and, and you, 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 you push the, the the you know sort of career and and financial opportunities to the side and you start thinking about wow this is another level this is now you're you're setting policy now you're uh, you're in a more public facing role now you're uh, the person in this county of nearly a million people uh, and you have supervisory authority over law enforcement and you get to do you know you go out uh, in the community and you speak for law enforcement and you and you and you're coming up with public safety strategies in your community it's 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 the profile is greater so the difference you're making by just showing up to work looking the way you do and believing the way you do i mean the ripple effects of that are are just i don't think you can measure them because putting aside the the, the young child that i talked about i've heard it from adults who might just wear a bandana to work who said, you know, I go to the county building and, and I see your picture in the lobby in Bergen County. Like that gave me a little bit more confidence to wear my turban to work. Uh, I showed my boss your picture and said like, that's me too. Those sort of things, right? Like that, like what, what value do you put on that? I don't think you can. And so to me, that opportunity, that, that the ability to make that sort of difference uh, the ability to give back in that way and make it better for others, I, I could I could live you know in my current position and 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 you know push push that law firm salary aside and and, and take that 
opportunity to, to make a difference and do it for a little while longer. That's what I told my wife. Let me just do this for a little while longer. And then I, I think I could find, you know, that, that well-paying job and, and, you know, plan for college for the kids and do all those things uh, that would have been a little bit easier to do uh, had I gone right to the law firm. But so at, you know, you were saying, you know, at the time of making the decision, you were, you know, in the U.S. Attorney's office and you said, you said you had no idea what the Bergen County prosecutor did. So how did you size up the opportunity to, I mean, the things you talked about, it seems like you could only really discover by doing the job. Like, so, or how did you get the condensed version of the impact at the time of the decision? So one of the things Governor Christie was doing was very, you know, at the time he became governor, he wanted to clean up local prosecutors' offices throughout New Jersey. Uh, you're not only the person who's running law enforcement in that county, you run a huge office, you're hiring prosecutors, you're hiring detectives. Uh, and what that in some places means uh, is it becomes a patronage mill. And the governor wanted to break that. He didn't want it to be like, oh, you know, we're going to hire only friends and family. We're only going to do this. You know, we're going to look the other way on these crimes. He wanted somebody who was a federal prosecutor to come in there again, like I said earlier, to call balls and strikes. He had put in place uh, a couple of my former colleagues in other counties. So I, I had a friend uh, who was the Middlesex County prosecutor at the time, Andrew Carey, who was a colleague of mine as a federal prosecutor. Uh, I had a, a former colleague, Grace Park, who had put in in Union County, another big county in New Jersey. And so, uh, you know, after t- doing the Google search and telling telling the the council on the other side that, yeah, I do want to continue this conversation. Of course, I did my diligence in, in talking to those folks and saying, hey, Andrew, what's this all about? Like how, you know, what does this opportunity look like for you in Middlesex? And, and going there and visiting him uh, and assessing, you know, and just seeing it, seeing the, the respect he commanded uh, in the community among law enforcement, going and visiting his office uh, and and seeing how he had things organized and, uh, and, and uh, you know, learning that way and talking to uh, like I said, others who had done the job or were doing the job. Uh, that's that, that's that's what really truly gave me the the you know an understanding of what that role looks like. And so, I, I, so I understand you know the opportunity cost of going to private practice, and that's very steep. I, I understand it's a lot to forego. But in terms of moving from U.S. Attorney's Office to Bergen County Prosecutor to AG to Head Enforcement at the SEC. In any of those moves, was there any downside that you faced? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I didn't realize is is when you go from being the chief of the economic crimes unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, sure, you'll do high profile cases, but you're not in the public limelight. You're, you're sort of, you know, you're there, you're, you're doing your work in court, uh, you're not making statements to the press, you're not giving press conferences. When, when you become the county prosecutor, you're the voice of law enforcement. You're giving press conferences, usually when something bad happens, or you're giving press conferences when uh, you're announcing, uh, you know, uh, an arrest or or when you're issuing a new policy. Uh, you're also more high profile when you're making decisions, when you're making decisions to, you know, in, in my case, uh, I had a police chief in, in one of my towns when I was a county prosecutor who had sent uh, an email, which to, to his cops in his town that seemed to encourage uh, them to engage in racially influenced policing. Uh, one of the authorities that I had was to take over that. I had the ability to take over that police department, remove him uh, from his position, relieve him of his duties and put in my own officer in charge for my office and investigate what was going on there. I did that. He was a very popular uh, police chief. 
that subjected me to, to all manner of scrutiny and criticism in the papers. Um, so th those are things I didn't anticipate. Those are costs, costs or, or whatever you want to characterize them as that I didn't fully appreciate would be associated with being in the limelight. And, and so I learned very quickly that, that I needed to have super thick skin because no one's going to take the time to understand every issue. People have very strong beliefs uh, and, and, you know, people are going to come after you. And they're going to come after your family. They're going to, you know, somebody's going to say something to your children in school, like, oh, your dad did this, you know, did this yesterday, or your dad was in the paper for this uh, today, you know, and that's tough. Uh, and, you know, th those are things that only increased when I became attorney general, those types of experiences. And and it became more and more difficult uh, for me to to deal with them as my children became older, as it became to, they began to read the papers and understand, you know, what was happening and the attacks uh, the political climate over the last, you know, five to six years has deteriorated and, and our discourse has deteriorated. And I'm in a high profile position during that time, uh, getting, you know, getting hit from all sides and my children are hearing about it and it's hard to shield it from them. So, and my wife, uh, as well, um, who, you know, has patient, who her patients would say things to her, you know, she didn't sign up for this. My kids didn't sign up for this. So th those were, things that I didn't fully anticipate or appreciate I'd be dealing with. And in making these transitions, I'm really curious about the connections between these, because, you know, it was interesting to talk about, hey, how did your training in rhetoric, you know, impact later on? How did, you know, your, your, your diplomacy experience impact later on? So, you know, I think there's some interesting mixing and matching to do. Um, you know, what are the ways in which you know, your experience as Bergen County prosecutor do you think has uniquely influenced your role now as, as head enforcement for the SEC? I don't think it's directly influenced how I'm, you know, my enforcement priorities, but I think what I learned when I became the Bergen County prosecutor, where I come into an organization of 350 plus people with a, a $36 million budget, where I have, you know, uh, I think I, at the time, 110 detectives, 60 or 70 prosecutors, and then the rest are support staff, uh, and then, you know, supervisory authority over law enforcement across the county. I learned a lot about how to run an organization, about how uh, to to make sure that we are, you know, hiring and retaining the best uh, people, which is which I learned very early on uh, is important. You're only as good as the people around you. You're only as good as the prosecutors you hire and train. So that that was something uh, that I really placed an emphasis on, particularly on the law enforcement side, because these folks are are out there. You're, they have police powers. Uh, how do you make sure, you know, through the interview process or the background check process, you're hiring people who are going to do that role or do that job the right way? Uh, so, you know, learning to to build teams um, at that local level, uh, learning uh, to to motivate folks. Um, that's a skill that I picked up, I, I think, really on the fly uh, on how to how to manage and motivate folks, uh, how to empower folks um, to make sure that they had the tools to do their jobs and how to hold people accountable when they fell short. I think those are all things that I picked up at that that county level. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I did and, and really this was through trial and error, I got to the prosecutor's office and I would get a briefing from one of my units uh, you know, because one of the things I wanted to do was not be in the weeds and micromanage, but I wanted to have an understanding of everything that was happening because 
if something happened and I got stopped on the street and, and somebody said, oh, you know, you're investigating this matter or that matter, like what's going on with it? I didn't want to know. I, there's no way I wouldn't know everything about it, but I wanted to know uh, generally what, what was going on, what was on our docket. So I would sit down periodically on, on a regular schedule with all my units. I'd have the command staff for that unit there. I'd have the, the uh, chief on the prosecution side there. And I would go through like case reviews. And, and I would, when we had to make decisions on tough cases, I would go around the room and make sure I was being collaborative and letting people you know, share their views because sometimes you're going to say, no, we can't move forward. Or sometimes you're going to say, we're going to move in a different direction. Keep That works if you hear people out, if you listen to them and, and you tell them why you're doing something in a certain way and you're clear about it, you're intentional. But when you have cops in a room, if you ask the chief first, you know, what, what he thinks, then everybody else is going to parrot what the chief said. So it's a small experience, but like now, like when I have a room full of folks, I go to the most junior people first on, on a team and, and ask them, I'm like, you, you know, you're, you're closest to this case. Uh, tell me what you think. So th- that was really good on job, on the job training. Uh, I also, you know, got a lot of on the job training dealing with crisis. Um, you know, when you're dealing with uh, a murder or you're dealing with some, some event that's happened and being on the scene and knowing how fast things move and how you know, the situation on the ground changes so frequently, that sort of trains you up for dealing with those sort of things in general. You you know that you need to be clear headed. You need to get all the information in before you speak on it, because you can go out at hour one and say something and it could be completely wrong at hour two. And, and the more you do that, the more credibility you lose. But there's always that tension of trying to get out there more quickly uh, and, and saying something more quickly. Uh, and so Building on that at the AG's office, where now I'm responsible for 8,000 people across, you know, 15 or 16 divisions at the time, um, I couldn't do that, you know, with everybody. I couldn't have that manner of, you know, that level of uh, interaction with everybody. So I learned about process and building out good structure and, and having a good system in place where, you know, I have a number of direct reports that I hear from, uh, you know, every day as to what's going on. And they're the ones who are managing down and, and then reporting up in the right way and and, and learning how to, to build out that structure, learning also to pro- create priorities. Because, you know, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And, and, and that's something I learned very quickly. So when I got into that role, uh, every speech I gave, every 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 opportunity I, I had to share with folks what my values were, what my priorities were, I, I would always talk about you know four things. Uh, these are the four things that 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 we're prioritizing at the AG's office, and they didn't change over the four years uh, that I was there. And, and so I think you know the goal of that was if people you know looked anywhere or or asked somebody you know what's the AG focused on. It was really built out around, you know, our priority areas, whether it's reducing gun violence, addressing the opioid epidemic, uh, ad- addressing issues of police community relations, and building out our capacity to, to engage in affirmative civil litigation, which was the work that we did against the Trump administration and uh, using, you know, our power in court to stand up for our residents. So that's something that I picked up in that role, that I really needed to be intentional in my communications. And all that's come together in this role in the same way. I mean, a lot of what we do here is blocking and tackling and it's reactive. You know, a crime's happened or, you know, a fraud's happened and we're going in there to investigate it. Uh, So it's really hard uh, to say, oh, affirmatively, we're going to do these three things or focus only in these three or four areas. But you can still say, you know, 
here's what what's important to us. We're obviously going to continue to cover the waterfront of securities fraud violations, but we're going to pay a particular emphasis uh, on these three or four spaces because that's what promoting investor confidence in our markets and restoring trust in our markets requires. And so that's you know the way in which we're operating and and just being very clear in our messaging. And those are all skills I picked up along the way. I think you talked about a lot of interesting components um, that have changed over time for your, or I think it'll be interesting to explore how they've changed over time. So one of the things you mentioned was your management style, how you motivate, you know, how you get feedback. How has that changed over time? What are, what are the ways in which your management style today is different than it was, let's say, in Bergen County? I, I think I've just become more patient. I've learned to listen more and, and I've become, um, I've become just more intentional, more intentional in my communications with folks who work with me, uh, letting them know what my expectations are more clearly, uh, letting folks know in the right way when when they've fallen short in meeting those expectations. The, the challenge in government and leadership in government in particular is that, you know, we have very few carrots and we have very few sticks. Uh, you You don't have the ability to move on folks as you would in, in in private practice. There are a lot of civil service protections. There are a lot of employment protections at the federal level. And you don't have the ability to, to give the types of bonuses and money to incentivize work uh, as you would in the private sector. So, you know, the one thing you can do is, is, is tell folks, you know, in clear terms that, you know, how you appreciate their work, message out constantly about, you know, the, our, our successes, celebrate, you know, the great work that's being done. And, and, and the other way you, you deal with folks is to really be plain about your expectations, try to find uh, the right fit for folks. If they're not, you know, if they're not hitting it out of the park in, in this role, trying to find a role in which they can hit it out of the park uh, and, and to, to, to work with them, uh, to find, you know, to find that, uh, you know, what, wh- where they can succeed. I mean, that's, that's something you have to learn in government. I learned that all along the way uh, where you just, you know, you've got to really just be patient uh, and it's frustrating at times. But um, so I think overall, I, I, I've learned to become more intentional and patient over the years. And so tell me some more about uh, you, you also mentioned learning to deal with the media and you're learning about, you know, there's considerations you have to make for when and what you'll present, what information. And so how have you become more sophisticated with leveraging media and understanding like how government should use media? Yeah. I mean, I think we, again, we, I'll, I'll talk about my current experience. You know, there's this perception and, and it's borne out in study after study uh, that we're not holding bad actors accountable. That you know, large corporate actors are getting away with with violating the securities laws or, or violating um, you know laws writ large and, and not being held accountable. And, and that's created a great deal of of, of distrust. Uh, and, and folks have you know, begin to think that there are two sets of rules: one for the big and powerful, and one for everybody else. And that leads to decline in investor confidence. And again, th- th- there are surveys that speak to this. The problem is we're not communicating out effectively uh, when we are holding folks accountable. We're not leveraging uh, the communication channels that that people use uh, to to you know to gather their news from. 
right? We have just now begun begun to leverage social media as a means of communicating our enforcement actions. Uh, and and we're, be- we're beginning to do it more effectively. But for us to issue a press release that we've, you know, find uh, so-and-so corporate wrongdoer X millions of dollars, and they've agreed to these, uh, you know, these remedies that we've imposed in a particular case, or that we're litigating against uh, a, a big corporate actor or holding uh, this particular CFO or CEO accountable in a litigation release, which only law firms are going to read, uh, that's not getting our message out there. So I think in this particular role, uh, our chairman, uh, our Office of Public Affairs has been more effective in leveraging those communication channels that get the message out there that we are the cop on the beat, that we are uh, you know, making sure that people play within the chalk lines, that they're not they're not flouting our rules and, and they're not getting away with things. So I think that's one real example uh, in this particular role. In, in the prior role, um, you know, I, we just dealt with so much. Um, as AG, you're dealing with uh, law enforcement issues. You're dealing with civil issues. You're representing the state in civil matters. Uh, I ran a division on civil rights. I'm dealing with, um, I'm dealing with, of all things, gaming. I, I had control uh, and supervisory authority over the casinos. Uh, I'm dealing with the racing commission, the horse tracks. I'm dealing with uh, the alcoholic beverage commission, the ABC. And so, you know, there were so many different uh, different divisions, all of which were doing great work, but the messaging wasn't getting out there. So we started very early on in 2018, trying to use social media, trying to be more thoughtful on how we were getting our message out. Um, and the other thing we did was when we were um, when we were giving a press conference, uh, you know, you learn um, how to communicate in, in sound bites, uh, which is a different way of talking because I don't think uh, people who are covering uh, covering uh, a press conference, you know, want to hear chapter and verse uh, of everything that happened. They just want that fifteen second clip that they could they could uh, put on the evening news. And so that was different, right? So you're starting to now have folks write for you in, in a way that uh, that soundbite is there. You pause at the right point. Um, that was something new to me. So early on as a county prosecutor, I would go out there and say, hey, you know, folks, uh, you know, we're here investigating a homicide at 224 Main Street in, in you know, any town, Bergen County. Uh, right now, this is what we have. Uh, we have a you know victim age so and so like I would do everything uh, and, and I very quickly realized at the AG's office I don't want to be the person giving the details I just need to be the person giving the big picture thematic sort of presentation saying listen you know the detectives are going to come here and brief you on what exactly transpired I'm here to assure you that there's no ongoing threat to public safety here in the county right now that the suspect's been apprehended there are no additional victims uh, it's it's a tragedy. Uh, but we're here to support this particular community. End of story, you know, hand it off to the next person. Like, and that's hard when you're a public person that, that you want to be the person at, at the mic the entire time, but you, you're just there to give the big picture story. And that that's something I had to learn, um, you know, over the course of three and a half years. If, and if you look at my press conferences, probably at the beginning of my tenure as AG, they're probably longer and my my remarks were longer, but I would you know, at the end was was really just sort of giving the big picture, letting other people fill in the details and then answer the specific questions that reporters may have. 
So something that I think would be interesting to pick up on is, you know, I'm really fascinated with, um, you know, connecting your specific experiences and layers, you know, I, I think, you know, another, a, another dimension I think there'll be interesting to pick up on is the ways in which you know, you've emphasized um, a lot of, you know, very hyper local work that you've done. You've talked about, you know, showing up these schools, talking about the opioid epidemic, and you've talked about, you know, going for runs with, you know, cadets and, you know, just like, just having, you know, just uh, boots on the ground, understanding what's, what's happening, you know, in, in your jurisdiction. And I imagine that's more challenging now, you know, at the SEC, you know, so, so what, what are some of the ways in which, you know, you're able to, you know, or, or want to change how that office operates in terms of having more access to tangible problems people are facing? That's a good question. I think all of that's made more complicated by the pandemic where we don't have as many touch points with with communities that we serve, um, where we're not doing that same type of outreach that we might have done pre-pandemic. So it's a challenge, but there's also a lot of opportunities because we could be in more places um, more you know, quickly by, by appearing virtually. So one of the things uh, that we're doing is we're doing a lot of um, speaking engagements uh, at different law schools in particular uh, to to help in our recruiting efforts. Uh, we are hiring like crazy, but we also want to make sure we're hiring in the right way. And this is one thing where I didn't close the loop on what we were talking about earlier. One of the things that I also picked up uh, in, in my different experiences is the importance of, of having a diverse workforce and how hard it is to, to work to creating that. Uh, and so all along the way, whether it was at the county prosecutor's office, uh, I wanted to work to address DEI issues because, you know, when you don't see representation in, in the top ranks of law enforcement, not I'm not talking South Asian representation, I'm just talking representation period of your communities, that breeds mistrust. Because if you're a community member and you don't feel as if you can connect to your cops or, you know, they're not going to understand where you're coming from because they haven't, you know, lived your experience or, you know, they, they don't look like you, uh, that's a barrier. Uh, and that's a reason why like affinity frauds persist. It's a reason why, uh, you know, during the Trump crackdown on immigration, why, you know, someone who didn't have status might be afraid to come in and report an abuser who, who's taking advantage of her or, or him. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the goal to promoting diversity in law enforcement is to make sure you're having a better understanding of the communities you serve by reflecting them. And so early on, I did a lot of engagement uh, with diverse, uh, you know, diverse groups at different criminal justice, uh, you know, schools and, and, you know, whether it's John Jay or other places where I can go out and talk about what a great career this is and do the hard work it takes to build diversity on the, on the, the front end. So you could build it, you know, later in your leadership ranks and the same thing with, with, uh, your prosecutors. So, then when I went to the AG's office, I had a chief diversity officer in my front office because I thought it was that important uh, to get this messaging out there that not only are we talking the talk, we're walking the walk. And I would not turn down speaking engagements to to law schools, to students, to to affinity bar associations, because I wanted to get the word out there that this is a great place to work, that this is a place where you could thrive. And, and so I've continued that here. And so your question was, uh, you know, how are we connecting at, at that local level or connecting uh, in the same way that that I was able to connect in, in prior roles? We're going to law schools. I, I'm speaking at my own alma mater to a small group, and it's sponsored by, 
uh, a group of law students who are first generation Americans uh, who ended up going to law school. They have a, a group at the campus and they invited us to come speak. It's by uh, going and, and working with Howard Law School to set up a class uh, there about uh, a securities uh, seminar to talk about the careers available to folks at the SEC to, to be uh, at the law school and present and teaching and doing the hard work at that local level and connecting at that local level. Uh, it's by doing events like we did in, in San Francisco where we met by going to a bar association event, uh, even for a night or you know, or day and a half and, and speaking and, and, and meeting folks and making yourself available uh, and, and making yourself available for, act, for active mentorship. You know, if I connected with so many folks uh, at that conference. I joked about the LinkedIn request, but I, I, I'm happy to get on the phone with folks that I've met to, to give them this advice one-on-one -on -one because that, that I think is my obligation. And so that's the way in which I'm doing that and staying connected with folks and trying to make that difference. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to pick up later on on you know changes that you think that you know uh, the legal community can make and, and bar associations can make. Uh, because I think an interesting jumping off point is, you know, so I, I reviewed your your testimony recently before uh, the before Congress uh, on the SEC, and uh, I think there's some interesting. Um, I think an interesting transition to this topic is, you know, it seems like a, a new priority for the SEC is focus on gatekeepers, uh, including lawyers. And so, what are the ways in which you know you feel like lawyers and their culture? Uh, can and should change. Yeah, I don't think it's a, a new new priority for us. I think you know we really, um, if we're going to create a, a culture of compliance at, at firms, uh, at broker dealers, at uh, you know any market intermediary, any excuse me, if we're going to create a culture of, of compliance at uh, at firms uh, in, in the securities industry, we need those gatekeepers to be doing their jobs. We can't be everywhere. Right, we only have fourteen hundred people in the division of enforcement, and there are hundreds of thousands of registered uh, entities uh, throughout this country. And so, we can't be uh, the cop on the beat at every broker dealer, at every investment advisor, at every uh, issuer. And so, the the lawyers who are fulfilling those roles as chief compliance officers, the lawyers who are fulfilling those roles uh, in giving advice uh, to their clients as to what's permitted and what's not permitted. They have to live up to their legal legal obligations and, and and give the right advice. They need to speak up when they see wrongdoing. And corporations and and, and firms need to invest in, in robust compliance programs. And so, when gatekeepers fall short, uh, that sends a, a, a terrible message to the public. When we talk about trust, when you see lawyers engaged in misconduct, I can't think of you know I can think of a few things that that send a, a you know. Uh, you know, a, a more harmful message out there about how the system is rigged than when you have lawyers cutting corners and 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 encouraging um, or facilitating misconduct. And so th that's why we're focusing uh, there and using whatever injunctive remedies we have uh, to hold uh, lawyers accountable and other gatekeepers accountable. And, and I think it's going to continue to be an important message because unfortunately, we continue to see lawyers, accountants, other gatekeepers fall short of their obligations. And let's tie this back to what you were just talking about. So you're just talking about you know, the, the, the importance of being available to people. So not just at a conference where there's a group of people or, you know, even at a, in a small group of law students, but even one-on-one -on -one conversations. So, you know, you're, you're doing things that don't scale at all. Mm -hmm. And you know, those are 
things that you believe have an in, influence and impact. And I feel like that's a recurring theme because you talked about going to these schools and saying, hey, maybe there's off chance this is influencing someone. And it did influence someone. Maybe that was the only person you influenced was that yeah. one kid. Uh, but it seems like to you that was worth it. All that effort, however many hours that was, made it worth it to you, um, which I can understand. Um, but so tell me some more about how mentorship and that sort of guidance um, will mitigate some of the problems we're having now. Will it? Won't it? I mean, is there a connection between these two concepts where you believe this is an important track and then here's this efficiency you're seeing in the bar? Oh, I, I see. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that's the most efficient way to go about you know promoting better behavior among lawyers. Uh, I gave a speech in, in California to a, a securities bar uh, conference. Uh, it was sort of loosely titled Lawyers Behaving Badly Part Two, uh, because part one is a speech that my predecessor, Rob Kazami, had given. And, and part two in, in was necessary because we continue to see you know, gamesmanship by lawyers, which frustrates the SEC process. And so, you know, speaking to a bar group like that and getting the message out there about how, listen, you know, this trust building that we're engaged in, all of us have a stake in it because when the markets work better, they work better for you. They work better for me. They work better for investors. People have more trust. And so when you're playing games with privilege assertions, when you're playing games, when we're taking testimony and you're kicking witnesses under the table when you don't like the answer they're starting to give, when you're engaged in in misconduct, out and out misconduct, uh, you know, in facilitating misconduct at a firm, that's not helping. That's not helping. We all have a role to play in this. And so, you know, that that's the way in which we're getting the message out and I'm getting the message out there, um, you know, effectively. What, what I would tell people, though, you know, it, when I talk about active mentorship, I, I, I want to talk to who I'll talk to anybody who, who, who reaches out to me to seek career guidance. Uh, and one of the first things I tell them is you only have one opportunity, particularly new law students uh, or, or new lawyers to, to develop your reputation, because you, you walk into your law firm, you're, you're, you're pretty much a blank canvas. But when you walk into that law firm, you have one opportunity to really start developing your reputation in the right way. And, and so develop that reputation early of someone who's a good team player, someone who doesn't cut corners, someone who puts in the work. And if you do that, that's going to stay with you. But if you develop a reputation early as to someone who doesn't you know, help out a colleague, someone who cuts corners, uh, someone who's not trustworthy, that follows you and starts to follow you pretty much forever. Because as big of a legal community as we are, it's not that big. Because if if somebody's applying for, for a job, somebody's going to know somebody at, at the law firm you're coming from or at your law school or, you know, and you're, you're, you're going to make a call and you're going to say, hey, what what's she like or what's he like? And, and you want the first, you know, first couple of words to be like, oh, great colleague, total team player, you know, does the work, uh, great legal skills. You don't want it to be like, you know, I, I can't say anything like uh, I don't have anything good to say. And so that's what I mean. Like that that's the type of advice I would give somebody. And I think because, you know, because I, I sort of follow that playbook, I think that's a big reason when somebody picked up the phone at the governor's office, called the U.S. attorney's office and said, hey, you know, what's Grabeer like? They, the, res, the reaction, I think, you know, based on, on what's happened to date was positive because I've always valued that. I've always valued my, my reputation. I've always valued integrity. I've always tried to be 
a great team player. I've always tried to go out of way out of my way for my colleagues. Uh, I've tried to take pride in my work, and, and so I think that's if you if you hew to those sort of principles, which are basic, but you don't know how quickly they get lost by a lot of people who get you know pulled in a hundred different directions and cut corners. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna address all these other sort of deficiencies we see when lawyers go off the tracks, um, and it's gonna help people succeed, I think, no matter what path they take. Well, uh, let me let me challenge on that because, you know, is it really the difference between whether someone got sat, got sat down and got that speech of, hey, you know, your reputation is the most important thing and you know, don't work with someone to cut corners? I mean, is that enough? Because isn't any number that, I mean, it, it can't be the case that the only people who are, you know, doing the kind of work that you're talking about who are, you know, uh, being aggressive with their privilege assertions, who are, you know, uh, shaping witness testimony. It can't be the case that those are all the people who cut corners as such. I mean, any number of these people are probably great team players. That's how they got in the position where they are today. Uh, you know, are the problems something more systemic and not just based on individual character? I'm not saying that this is this is the way you address, you know, every lawyer behaving badly. I'm just saying that this is one way in which I think you're on a better path than most. And this is this is sort of the strategy that's worked for me. And I think this is what I look for when I, when I, you know, I'm hiring folks at a high level, I'll make those calls. And, and I think, you know, there's value to, to just hewing to these simple principles. Um, I'm not naive enough to think that it's going to solve all the world's ills. Uh, and I'm not naive enough to think it's going to force lawyers to, to behave better. I think there's this tension in the legal community um, that you're a good litigator only if you're if you're scorched earth and if you're fighting tooth and nail for your clients and there are some some clients who want that and so they create this uh, you know they create this void that's filled by you know these lawyers who are all trying to say I, I'm going to be your 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 fighter and I'm going to be the one that uh, goes to the mat for you but I will tell tell you that those lawyers are not the ones who are most successful. Uh, in my experience with with regulators like me it's it's the ones who are you know m- most measured who, the ones who have a lot of credibility the ones who you you know cuz it's it's a re- it's a small bar right like there there are just a there there are those folks like who we deal with a lot and we know their reputations we know the ones we could trust we know the ones where we have we've got to take you know sort of extra care with representations they're making on behalf of their clients. Uh, and, and there's the ones that we don't trust at all. Right. And, and, and that's, that's how real that is. And so, you know, again, I don't think it's going to solve everything, but it's, I think it's going to help you fall into that category of being that more effective lawyer with, with more credibility. Are those effective lawyers with more credibility, part of firms that have participated more in a revolving door? Is, is that a benefit of a revolving door? No, I wouldn't say so. Um, no, I, I don't think that's, I mean, I don't know. I haven't really sort of studied the benefits of the revolving door other than knowing what our processes are, knowing, you know, how to most effectively navigate the SEC process. There's certainly a benefit from folks for, you know, benefit uh, if you come from from the SEC, go to private practice because you understand this place. I will tell you, I worked with the SEC for for probably a decade and a half as a federal prosecutor or 12 years as a federal prosecutor. And I only knew a narrow piece of the SEC. Um, I, I knew the anti-fraud violations. I knew the enforcement division. And when I got here, it is such a broad remit. There are the, the policy divisions do such incredible work, the rulemaking divisions. Uh, and so, you know, you don't know how the SEC process works until you've worked here. So there's an advantage uh, to folks who who leave here 
um, and, and, and how to navigate the SEC. And I think they'll probably tell you that, you know, you, you, it's more, you're more effective, uh, if you really guard your credibility and, and because a lot of times that's all you have when you're having a tough negotiation. Let, let me, uh, I mean, to, along the way, like I've heard great speeches. I've heard, um, you know, great, heard from a lot of leaders. One that sticks with me, which speaks to this point is uh, Jim Comey, when he was a deputy attorney general, uh, came to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. I was probably a year or two there as a federal prosecutor. Uh, and he came there because morale was at an all-time low in the Justice Department. Uh, there were all types of scandals taking place. Uh, and you know the U.S. Attorney firings, uh, I think, were happening or ha- had happened. Uh, and he came there and he said, hey, to, to all of us assembled. And I remember it vividly. We were assembled in the the ceremonial courtroom. This is probably like 2007. Uh, and he comes in and he says, listen, each of you were given an incredible gift when you became a federal prosecutor, when you, when you took that oath. And you might not realize uh, that you received that gift. And it, you might not realize it till the first time, you know, you, you tell somebody what it is that you do. Uh, and, and it might be at a party and you say, you know, I'm a federal prosecutor. And, and you might not notice, but those people will begin to listen to your words a little bit more carefully. Uh, and you may not realize you received this gift till the, the first time you go to uh, a, a court and you're arguing a tough motion, right? And, and, and the judge can go either way, uh, but goes with you uh, because because you have this gift. And, and, and you may not realize this gift till the first time you go to, to a victim who, who is hesitant to speak to you, but, you know, learns who it is you are and who you work for and, and opens up to you and tells you about, uh, you know, what they've undergone or, or experienced. That gift that, that you don't realize you carry with you is a reservoir of trust and credibility. It's with you. It's with you when you take that oath and it's with you uh, throughout everything you do in this job. And that reservoir of trust and credibility is a reservoir that's been filled by all the good deeds of the people who came before you, did this job the right way, didn't cut corners, and added to that reservoir and left it more full for the next person than they themselves found it. But he said, Comey said, the thing about reservoirs is that while it takes generations to fill them, they could be drained in an instant. So your job as the, the recipient of this great gift is to guard that reservoir and leave it more full to the next person than you found it. You know, on that, do you have something else you want to add? No, no. But I think that that's it for me. Like, does that solve the work, you know, all these problems that we're seeing in the legal profession? No, but, but does it underscore the value of credibility in this profession because it is a small world? Certainly. Does it underscore the need to do the job the right way? In my mind, it does. I think that that perfectly captures how I think people should be uh, should be practicing. So, with this reservoir metaphor, I think that would be interesting to to jump to another point of your testimony. Uh, and so, one of the things that you spelled out is, you know, trust Americans' trust in financial markets and institutions is at near historic lows. And you said, while there is no single cause of this decline, repeated lapses by big businesses. Uh, large businesses, you said, gatekeepers and other market participants, coupled with the perception that we, the regulators, are failing to hold them account- appropriately accountable, have contributed to this decline. So on the subject of the reservoir, what are things you think that your predecessors did that drained that reservoir? Well, I, 
I don't think my predecessors drained that reservoir. I, I, and I don't think that's what I was implying in, in any of those statements. I think my predecessors uh, have all done this job, you know, with integrity and, and, and have done it, uh, you know, incredibly well. I think there's a perception out there uh, that we're failing to hold folks accountable. People say, why aren't you holding individuals accountable, right? When, when they engage in misconduct and you're only penalizing corporations. That may be true on the criminal side at the Department of Justice, but when you dig deep, my predecessors, uh, 70% of the resolutions we've brought over the last five years have involved individual accountability. That that message is not getting out there. And that ties back to what we were talking about earlier, that there are these perceptions there. there. There are repeated lapses by gatekeepers. That's why we need to send a strong deterrent message. Uh, and, and so that's a priority for me. I'm not saying my my predecessors didn't hold gatekeepers accountable, but I know in this particular moment, I need to emphasize uh, holding gatekeepers accountable. So when I had um, I had a matter uh, involving Ernst & Young recently, uh, big four audit firm, what I chose to do in that case was make sure that there were admissions in that case. Usually most of our resolutions are neither admit nor deny. But in that particular case, because of a heightened need for public accountability, because they were a gatekeeper, uh, I wanted admissions and, and our team negotiated admissions. I wanted a, a significant penalty. So we had a hundred plus $125 million penalty, I believe it was in that particular case. I, I wanted to include in that uh, remedy undertakings uh, where they were going to put in place compliance consultants and, and, and not only just compliance consultants to make sure they had adequate policies and procedures, but that they were also going to put in a separate consultant to review the misconduct in that case. In that case, the misconduct was auditors cheating on professional, uh, you know, continuing professional education exams, including ethics exams. It was CPAs who were studying to be CPAs che cheating on, you know, the ethics exams to become a CPA. That 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 there's nothing more foundational to an auditor than to to have you know good ethics. And so that's an example of where in, in how I'm fashioning a remedy, I'm trying to address what I'm seeing out there, which is this deterioration in trust. That's not to say that my predecessors didn't do that. They brought these cases. They brought great cases, um, but they may have chosen to you know, view penalties in a different way or, or not pursue certain remedies. And, uh, and they, they were dealing with a different moment. I'm dealing with this particular moment, and given the circumstances that I'm seeing right now, I think we need to pursue robust penalties, and we need to pr pursue robust remedies, and we need to create a culture of proactive compliance because, you know, I, I, that trust gap uh, and deterioration is real in my mind. So those are solutions uh, for the problem. So, so you you have a theory that an admission is a solution for public trust. What what gives you the impression that admission is has like if if I ask someone on the street, hey, does it matter to you? Do you have more faith in public markets because Ernst Young admitted this wrongdoing? How do you know what the answer is going to be? Well, I think the people, you know, well, I'll flip it on you um, because the criticism I'm getting uh, and, and that we get as regulators is that why do you resolve everything with the neither admit nor deny? How are you holding people accountable? What's that all about? You know, they're, you're you're saying that they violated these the these securities laws, but in the resolution, they're neither admitting nor denying uh, the violation. They're not saying anything. Uh, they're paying you a big penalty, and 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 maybe there's some other remedies attached to that. But how how is that promoting accountability? So so that that's out there. 
Uh, and so the, the flip side of that, I don't think there's anything uh, th- that that is more attention grabbing and, and, and can address, you know, people's concerns that folks aren't being held accountable than exacting admissions in a particular case. Uh, and so, you know, I haven't done the studies there, but I, I just think, you know, based on, you know, those two scenarios, like in the right cases, because we can't do it in every case, the majority of our resolutions will still be neither admit nor deny because otherwise we're not going to get, you know, things resolved. It, it's just not practical. But in the right cases where there's a heightened need for public accountability, where there's a, you know, a, a real recidivist, let's say, or whether there's a threat to the public markets, whether there's, you know, something that that we need to send a strong message on, in those cases, we'll pursue admissions. And in those cases, we'll be willing to litigate uh, if we don't get admissions. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's effective. And I'm sure, I'm sure folks have looked at it too. Uh, I don't know, you know, if, if that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how you measure. Um, it's hard to, I think, find measures like to say, did this, you know, d- deter misconduct altogether in a particular space, right? Th- that That's a tough question to answer. But uh, I will tell you that um, it's caused market participants to change their behavior because they don't want to be the next firm to to have a resolution involving admissions because there are a lot of knock-on effects too when people admit to certain types of misconduct they lose certain privileges uh you know w- when they're broker dealers they lo- lose certain waivers and 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 you know registration exemptions and things like that so people are really you know w- whether the public doesn't key in on it market participants know how significant it is and, and they they're changing behavior and so I think something else interesting you're you're saying about comparing <clears throat> previous regulatory regimes is it's not apples to apples because there's just a, a different era that we're in. And so recognizing that, you know, when you said, okay, so now you're opt, you know, so so approaching, you know, remedies and for, you know compliance and you know um, you know just using these different tracks as as ways to uh, increase public trust it seems like public trust is the North star, you know, and, and that's what you're optimizing for now. What were your predecessors predecessors optimizing for instead? Because it sounds like you said, you know, say on the subject of admissions and, and going, you know, with neither admit nor deny, you know, what, you know, why was that, you know, uh, what was a relevant trade-off that made that in the calculus more attractive? Again, I can't, I don't want to speak for, for my predecessors and, and, you know, what they're, what motivated them? I, I I know my immediate predecessors, and I the ones I know were, were focused on the same thing that I'm focused on. Uh, you know, our our core mission is investor protection. It's ensuring the fair and efficient operation of our markets. It's ensuring and facilitating capital formation. That's a tripartite mission of the SEC. They they believed in it, uh, and they did what they thought uh, was the right thing and the most effective thing to do to to achieve that mission. I think to achieve investor protection, we also have to focus on restoring public trust and confidence in our markets. And, and that's something that I, I've keyed in on. And I think it's born out of my prior experiences because as AG, I did have the opportunity to speak to folks around the state and, and to speak in town halls across the country. And and, and the feedback I got, uh, and I think it's still true, is that whole you know pockets of, of, of this country have lost confidence in, in their government. We know that. We've seen that. We've seen that play out in our in our electoral politics and at the same time they've lost confidence in our financial institutions because they don't think uh, that the markets work for them and because of that they're you know is it any wonder that why 
you know, the crypto crash has hurt uh, more minority groups than other groups. There's studies to that effect uh, because th these are folks who, you know, in some cases felt like the the markets didn't work for them and saw crypto as something different uh, and and invested heavily in, in certain crypto products, which you know the bottom fell out of. And, and so that's something you know we need to be mindful of because if there's confidence in our markets, we're better able to protect investors. So uh, the 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 three part mission: protecting investors, maintaining fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitating capital formation. What are ways in which those can be trade offs or or intentional with each other? Intention with each other? I, I don't think there are trade offs. I mean, I think you know we have other divisions that are focused on you know making sure that market structure issues are addressed and you know corporation finance is addressing you know our, our registration regime that it's operating uh you know effectively uh, investment management management is making sure that uh you know investment advisors and private funds and and other you know others that are operating in that particular space are, are regulated so all of that, a well-regulated market, a robust disclosure regime uh, allows for investor protection. It allows for the fair and efficient operation of our markets and, and allows when 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 all that is working for capital formation, when you don't have trust, right? Just to bring it back to the trust point, um, are you really going to part with your, your retirement and invest in the market? Right? If, if, you're, if you don't really think that the market works for you, are you really going to to invest in, in a retirement account, uh, if you're not like, then that affects everybody down down the line. It affects capital formation. It affects the fair and efficient operation of markets. If if folks are not putting their money in the markets, and that that's bad for all of us. And so I think all of this works in harmony. So we uh, one of the and I'm mindful that you know we're we're uh, our time is running short here. So I, so I, I want to just get in a few more questions to explore your worldview because I think it sounds like you know you are looking to leave your mark on this organization. And so I'm just I, I want to explore some of the things that you're going to do because you know our previous conversation touched on some of the legacies that you wanted to leave behind. So I, I guess do you have a thesis at this point? You know what is the mark that you want to leave on on this institution? Yes, like I get. You asked me that previously, and 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 so again, I, I don't want to be. Um, I'm not trying to be difficult here at all. Like I, I don't think in those terms. I really don't. Uh, and like I don't. I didn't come into this job thinking like I, I'm going to leave a particular mark. I didn't get into the the AG job thinking I was going to leave a particular mark. I didn't get into the 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 county prosecutor job thinking I would leave a particular mark. I didn't become a federal prosecutor to leave a particular mark. But I talked to you about. My motivations for entering public service, and and you know, I don't think my career strategies lend themselves well to this lens of opportunity costs and and trade offs and things like that. I've just tried to do the right thing, you know, and and I think you know if I could continue to make that impact um, that I wanted to make as a federal prosecutor, as a county prosecutor, I made that decision. I know, you know, there were consequences to to my family as a result of it. When I had the opportunity to become AG, like I could could do those same things that I was trying to do uh, first as a county as in a, a federal prosecutor, then as a county prosecutor, as an AG, uh, and, and 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 along the way, the mark I wanted to leave was just to make sure that I did it the best I could, right? That that I was just doing the work, that I was making it better for the residents of my county uh, as a county prosecutor, that I was making it better for the residents of my state. 
that I was pushing back on things that I thought were unjust, that I was addressing things that were important to me, issues that were important to me. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is the rise in bias offenses and crimes that we saw, you know, over the last number of years in New Jersey. I, I know how that type of intimidation affects whole communities, right? I, I We lived it, I don't know how old you are, but in Jersey, when we had the dot busters, you had people mm-hmm. in, in Hudson County who were afraid to go to their mothers and they were afraid to, to leave their homes uh, because you had a whole group of folks terrorizing uh, the, the Asian American community, the Indian American community in, in Jersey City. So when things started to percolate again, and you know, more recently, the rise in anti-Asian hate, I was in a position to do something about it because I, I knew how deep those wounds cut. And, and, and so like, that's why I do this job. Uh, it, it wasn't, it's not like intentional in the way that, you know, I want to leave this mark here or leave that mark there. I, I think that the way in which I leave a mark is just to say, I came in here. Uh, I, I focused on these things that were important to me and, and I empowered the people who worked here. Uh, I, I had their backs and I supported their work. Uh, and, and we, we, we protected investors as best we could, and we tried to restore confidence in our markets. I, I firmly believe that that's the case. Like, I don't need to look at studies. I, I just think whether it's real, whether it's borne out in like granular scientific data, there's this perception out there. And so we need to continue doing our work and we need to do it in a, in a way that gives folks, uh, you know, th- that people know that, that we are placing an emphasis on accountability. Uh, and, and we're not letting people price in penalties as the cost of doing business. That we're we're taking bad actors and you know repeat violators out of the profession. That we're being you know we're being super uh, you know super thoughtful in, in, in the way we're crafting remedies, whether it requires admissions in a particular case or, or maybe not in that particular case. Like th- that, like I, I'm just too focused on the now to think about legacy, right? So. You know, and, and you know, people are going to say what they they want to say. Some people love the stuff I did in Jersey. Uh, other people hate it. I didn't do it because a particular group loved it, or and I didn't do it to antagonize a different group. I did it because I thought it was the right thing in that particular moment, and I made a lot of hard choices then. Uh, and but I really, when I was AG, I thought we were. Now I'm talking about policing issues. We were in a particular moment where I thought we were going to finally fix a lot of these structural issues and that moment's gone. And unfortunately the momentum's uh, not there anymore to, to, to make bold choices. And, and I'm happy about the legacy we left and the, the policies we put in place. I'm disappointed that more hasn't been done since, but like, I, I wasn't doing that because of concern over legacy. I was doing that because in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in the wake of the, 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 the black lives matter protests, I wanted New Jersey to be a model of how we could get it right. Uh, how we could actually, you know, promote transparency and professionalism and accountability and law enforcement and, and bring communities together. Uh, and, and and that's why Jersey didn't have that same experience other parts of the country did, where we had hundreds of protests, but we didn't have the same types of uh, violence that we saw in other parts of the country because we were doing that hard work, not because we wanted to leave that legacy, but because we thought that was the right thing to do in that particular moment. And so, you know, th- that's why we did it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's probably some distinction between the word legacy that we're using because I, when I hear the things you're talking about, I, I hear about a lasting impact. And I think maybe you're, you're hearing me saying, oh, like, what's the prospective change I want to create here? But I, I guess, I mean, another way of saying it is, you know, your predecessors that are coming into your roles in Bergen County and AG, I mean, if you heard they just undid everything you did, it can't be the case you would say, 
oh, that's totally fine. Just you're doing whatever's best. And it can't be the case that anything I did was, was had an enduring value. So, I mean, it, it seems to me, you I, I think we're, have, yeah. You know, I think we're just talking around each other. I think what, what I hear your question uh, to, to ask is like, you know, what, when I hear legacy, it's like, you know, it's about me. Right. right? Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I, I'm not doing it to you. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not like, none of this is about me. Yeah. Right? And so, um, I, I want to use, I, as a County prosecutor, I wanted to use all the levers that were available to me to make the lives of our, our residents better to address all those issues that we've talked about to, to now, um, you know, as effectively as I could, uh, of course, I'd be upset if people uh, unwound those policies, right? I was hopeful that a lot of the policies we implemented at the AG's office would be codified in law, but there hasn't been that will. Um, and again, we've lost that moment, I think, um, to, to to implement that type of lasting change. But I'm happy that I have those directives that are still in place there. Um, yeah, I'd be terribly upset because we put a lot, a lot of hard work. We're the only state that that changed our use of force policy to make it more about respecting the sanctity of life than about talking about how and when we could use force. It was a, it was a real sea change and, and cops bought into it and we retrained cops and we retrained 37,000 cops right before I left. The last thing I did was attend those trainings uh, the, my last week as AG because it was just, that was like sort of, you know, that, that that's the legacy I wanted, I guess, if I'm going to borrow your word, I wanted to like change the way we did things for the better. And the same thing here, right? There's, so much we could do more effectively. We could make the lives of our, our 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 staff better. We could give them more tools. We could push back, you know, more authority to them so they could work more efficiently. Uh, we could message out more effectively that we're holding people accountable. But I don't view that as anything that I'm doing for me, but more doing all I can in this time that I have here uh, to to you know address those issues that I care about. Yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing now. Okay. So you and I uh, talked about a shared enjoyment of uh, a really great writer on, on financial markets, Matt Levine. And, you know, you, 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 when I mentioned Matt Levine, you said, oh, Elon, which was just like <laughs> a catchphrase that told me, okay, you, you're, 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 you know, the deep cuts. Uh, so I, what, what do you think is something uh, interesting perspective? I feel like Matt Levine has all these really interesting frameworks for thinking about markets market participants what do you think is the most interesting or funny framework that you know you just it just struck you and just something that you've thought about since you know that you've read from him you know i i don't know if i i i don't know if i know another another reporter in this space that's able to just sort of break down complex financial instruments to ba- break down uh you know crypto and and and, and crypto lending and break down all these like you know what are really in some cases uh difficult issues to understand in a way uh, that anyone can understand it and, and like that's that's such a skill and, and and how prolific he is and how quick he is you know we, we could issue news on 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 day you know this morning and by his afternoon when the uh, newsletter hits uh he'll already have an analysis and and have relatable real world examples and you know uh related to his own experiences he's a really talented a lawyer and a really talented um, reporter. I think, uh, in my mind, you know, no one's able to sort of dive deep into what we're doing uh, and explain it in such a clear way and get it right most of the time. Uh, you know, than Matt Levine. 
I, I there, can't like, I'm not going to talk about a specific storyline or a specific article that, that resonates because he's largely writing about what we're doing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's all this interesting, the, there's like, say the boredom Marcus hypothesis, there's the Elon Marcus hypothesis. I mean, have yeah. any of those influenced your worldview or, you know, resonate with you in any way? Uh, I'll just say that I, I read a lot and, and, you know, I'm not going to sort of highlight a specific <laughs> a theme that's resonated or informed my uh, enforcement philosophy. Okay. Very good. I thought I had you there, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, okay. Well, this is really great. I'm glad we took the time to talk and uh, this is interesting tour of your worldview and and your experience. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate taking the time to sit down. Listen, listen, my pleasure. And um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe when I sit down and, and look back at it, there's probably more, you know, structure to what I've done or, or something, you know, that I haven't thought about. But I really do mean it that I, I it's um, I, I was literally sitting um, in Di- Disney World when I got the call for the AG opportunity. Uh, I was on vacation with, with my family and I was at the Little Mermaid with my f- then four year old where somebody called me and asked me about my interests in, in, in the AG position, I started the interview process. I was at the AG's office. It was on May 20th of, of, of last year. It's my anniversary. I get a, a text uh, from somebody who wants to talk uh, about this current opportunity. I wasn't soliciting it. Uh, I, you know, Plenty of people have tried to audition for these roles. It's a great, I think it's the best job for for white collar government lawyers like it's the best position it's a nationwide reach you have such ability to to do good here uh in a very complicated and challenging space and 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 really set priorities again i wasn't looking for it i I got that email out of the blue um and you and i have talked about this before and maybe this is something that's worked for me but i i do think there's something to be said about just doing the work about just putting your head down and doing the work. Because I think people notice. People notice at the law firm. People notice uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office. People notice in government. People notice, um, you know, wherever you are. Uh, the work the work speaks more than you could speak by trying to sort of hustle for a role and angle for an opportunity. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just think sometimes that becomes more, you know, it just—it's obvious to me that the people. Excuse me. It becomes obvious to me the people, you know, around me in these different roles who are just looking to get a leg up and 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 cut a corner to to use that expression I used earlier. Uh, but it's different because I'd also notice the people who do the work uh, and do the work for the right reasons, and I think that means more to me um, than a lot of a lot of things when I'm sort of assessing talent. Fair enough. Great final words. All right, man. Uh, Now I've got to go buy a lot.